Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. How does the moon cut his hair? I don't know. Eclipse it. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from writer William Bostwick that'll help break the ice. His latest book is called A Brewer's Tale, A History of the World According to Beer. We'll speak to him later about some weird things happening in the world of beer. Yes. Plus, we'll chat with a guy who probably favors martinis over lager. Musician Brian Ferry talks art, Roxy Music, and his new album, Avon Moore. Also coming up, we hear from another British pop sensation, this one a little younger. Jessie Ware shares her dinner party soundtrack. Then The Daily Show's Asif Mandvi tells us a story, and former poet laureate Billy Collins waxes, well, poetic. <laughs> so let's get started, as at any dinner party, with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Historic cold for this time of the year. We had 86% of the lower 48 below freezing. The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1 hits theaters. Today, Obama said the nation needs an immigration system that, quote, doesn't send away talent but attracts it. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is a contributing editor at the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I am going to talk about the second-degree murder of Vincent van Gogh. That's craziness. We all know that he killed himself in a weed field. That's Do right. we? Well, <laughs> in 2011, two prominent biographers stated otherwise. They said that, in fact, all the forensic evidence didn't add up, and he had probably been shot by another person. Oh. Uh-huh. So this is kind of like a serial podcast for art. They kind of reopened the case. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of a cold case. What was the motive? Well, apparently he was kind of a loner who nowadays we might say was on the spectrum. You don't say. And there were. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently these uh, these boys in town used to kind of harass him and hang out with him, and they think one of them shot him by mistake. So, so what's the new wrinkle in all this? Well, since the guys wrote their book, there has been a backlash of Van Gogh traditionalists who didn't like their idea of the tormented genius upended. Mm. So they have hired a forensics expert to go back and kind of do a cold case style mm. investigation. And he oh, found that, in fact, he was probably shot by a third party. Oh, my God. This changes wow. everything. Wait, he still cut off his ear, though, right? He did indeed cut off his ear. This okay. was part of what led to the... Okay. The Wait, actually, I thought it was... I heard that it was actually even just the tip of his ear. Like, everything we know about Van Gogh is wrong. Oh, yeah, Are those his paintings? He, oh, no. I think the Kirk Douglas movie might have done a lot to shape <laughs> modern perceptions of this. Wait, where does this end? I know. Was Jackson Pollock a teetotaler? Uh, yeah. Like, well, what, what? these are interesting. You should ask, because these are apparently the same guy who discovered that Jackson Pollock was, in fact, bisexual, which was also highly controversial. Wow. Which, which they also stand by. All right. Sadie Stein will be looking for more on this in the papers, I'm sure. Thanks for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a rubber ducky floating in a bathtub of booze. <laughs> It's a tipsy rubber ducky. Right. First, the history. This week, back in 1979, some U.S. government officials experienced the apocalypse. Almost. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the annals of bad mornings, this has to take the cake. It was 3 a.m. on a Friday, and White House security advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski was awakened with eye-opening news. 
Defense computers were warning the Soviet Union had launched hundreds of nukes at the U.S. of A. America's Minuteman missile sites were put on alert. Fighter jets took to the air, and so did the so-called doomsday plane, from which the president would conduct a retaliatory strike. Brzezinski didn't even wake up his wife, so she could die peacefully in her sleep. But then, officials checked radar and satellite intelligence. Turns out, no nukes had launched. At all. U.S. forces stood down. The whole incident, to the brink of Armageddon and back, had taken under 10 minutes. The Pentagon's explanation for the computer error? That training software simulating a Soviet attack had been mistaken for the real deal. How? They weren't sure. Said one commander, quote, the precise mode of failure could not be replicated. When the Soviets learned how close we'd come to nuking them over a non-existent attack, they were not happy. But subsequent improvements to warning systems didn't prevent false alarms. There have been at least three more, the last one 18 years ago. That time, Norway launched a science rocket designed to study the Northern Lights. Russia mistook it for a Trident missile and considered nuking us. So that was the rather discomforting history. Now for a drink to go with it. On the line is Nate Windham, bartender at the Blue Star in Colorado Springs, Colorado, very near the command post known as NORAD, which is one of the sites where defense computers made their scary mistake. Nate, what drink did that story inspire? So what I did was I thought about if I'd gone through that situation, either if I was the guy at NORAD or if I was Brzezinski, how yep. would I have handled that after I finally hung up the phone and everything was relieved? Oh, man. And so my very first thought was a quick shot of something. <laughs> but at 3.10 in the morning, I thought a quick shot of whiskey was just a little too much. <laughs> yes. And here in Colorado, we're really we're well, well known for our Palisade peaches that come off of the western slope. And so every oh. year I do a peach shrub, which is a way to kind of preserve fruit and vinegar. It's like vinegar. It's kind of vinegar infused with fruit and fermented. That's that's right. So what I did was a shot of a whiskey that's actually made right here in Colorado Springs from Distillery 291. They do a great Colorado rye whiskey. Mm. So I did a shot of that with a little bit of Palisade peach shrub and a couple of dashes of bitters. And that's just shaking really, really hard over ice because I would imagine that your nerves are at end <laughs> yeah. and you're ready for something. You're, you um, don't actually have to shake it. You just hold it in your trembling hands. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then you strain that into a rocks glass with no ice. And you down it all in one tug. <laughs> and that makes you feel a little better that you just witnessed almost the apocalypse. That's right. <laughs> Pretty awesome. But so I do, I have to ask you though, NORAD is one of the main command centers in the event of an attack, right? Yes. Does it strike you as scary that everyone knows where it is and that you live right next to it? You know, like, <laughs> a little bit from time to time. I always wonder, you know, but, you know, I grew up during those nuclear years and I always said that I'd rather be at ground zero than anywhere else in the country. I guess that's true, especially if you've got, you know, a bar full of liquor to calm your nerves. That's right. And, Brendan, it occurs to me that when I think of NORAD, the, the picture in my head is straight out of the 80s movie War Games. Like, there's a big, <laughs> chunky supercomputer in a corner called Whopper with LED yeah. lights on it. Dabney Coleman is in charge. That's right. <laughs> Actually, I kind of want Dabney in charge in a doomsday scenario. Dabney would lead us. Uh, people, all our cocktail recipes are on our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. 
So we've made some small talk, had a drink, now for some background music. And here with the Dinner Party playlist is British musician Jessie Ware. Her debut album was nominated for the Mercury Prize and led some to call her the missing link between Adele and Sade, although she has much better posture than a missing link. That's right. Uh, Her new album's called Tough Love. Here she is to DJ your party. Hello, I'm Jessie Ware, and I've been asked to make a Dinner Party playlist. I recently got married and my husband and I had this whole thing of having a playlist for our dinner music. This was very, very important to us. So I think I'm still in that like romantic zone. So I'm going to stay with that with this dinner party. I would start with Rye Open. I'm a fool for that shake in your thumbs. I'm a fool for that sound in your the way that it comes in, it kind of feels almost like it's been with you forever. So it's not like a big shock. And I think for dinner party music, you don't want it to interrupt too much. I want to make this place. Oh, I know you're faded. Mm, stay. Don't close your hands. We put it on when people were having cocktails just after we got married. It's got this beautiful energy about it where it felt optimistic, it felt happy. It's um, it's warm, and I want my dinner party to be happy in a warm place. I'd like to think my playlist is going to be, you know, a good two hours. So this would probably come later in the dinner party. People have had a few drinks, maybe we're on to, like, a whiskey hour. Um, I'd choose Marvin Gaye, I Want You. Everyone knows sexual healing, everyone knows, you know, what's going on and all these songs. But this song, it's the most moody, hypnotic, just the way that he kind of coos in it. There's an amazing YouTube video of him doing it in rehearsals where I think he's pretty stoned in it and he's lying down and it's just drowsy and I feel like it's perfect dinner party music because it's it's not like he's right in your ear hole, you know what I mean? It's not desperate, it's honest. And those are the best songs. The longing songs are the best. The bittersweet songs are the best. So I'm going to go for a newer song because I actually think it would work very well with the Marvin and the Rye song. It's a Usher, Good Kisser. I done been around the world, I done kissed a lot of girls, so I'm guessing that it's true. Make me holler and I bet a million dollars, don't nobody kiss it like you. I mean, it's such a tune. And actually, it sounds like a Marvin Gaye song. And it's got that mm, duh, mm, I love how Usher is using his voice, this high register. This is just sassy, like, this is so cool. It makes you kind of want to shimmy into somebody and, like, go and, like, grab that person that you've wanted to flirt with all night that maybe you've, you know, been eyeing over the dinner table. It's so good, man. So good. Bang, bang, bang. Don't nobody kiss it like you. Don't nobody kiss it like you. I would never play a song of mine at my own dinner party. I'm just putting that out there. But because you've asked, I shall not resist. 
There's a tune that I did on my new record called Kind of Sometimes Maybe. I did it with Miguel. Now, Miguel is the king of sex music, I think, at the moment. And he's like, you're a really confident woman and you never show this in your songwriting. I want people to see how confident you are. And I was like, oh God, I, I don't want to. I like to be the one that's longing for somebody. He was like, no, you need to be sassy in this. So this song is sexy. Miguel is whispering in my ear, being like, let me come over. I just want to talk to you. And I can't believe we got away with it. It's just fun. A dinner party soundtrack from Jessie Ware. Her new album's called Tough Love. Also, if you want to learn more about Miguel, her collaborator, head to dinnerpartydownload.org, and you'll find an interview I conducted with him a year back in which he taught me his signature, whoop, which I now get to hear all the time. <laughs> all right, coming up, poet Billy Collins, musician Brian Ferry, and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Whoop. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In just a few minutes, The Daily Show's Asif Mandavi channels Michael Jackson, and I learn why someone would put pork in beer on purpose. <laughs> also coming up, Brian Ferry, musician and former frontman for legendary band Roxy Music, tells us how he keeps his cool. Old world charm goes a long way, yes. And now, speaking of old world charm, Brendan, let us talk to a poet. All right. Billy Collins was officially America's Poet Laureate back in 2001, but unofficially he's been our reigning national bard for way longer than that. That's right. His wit and accessible style have won him lots of awards and many fans. His latest collection of poems is called Aimless Love. It just came out in paperback, so we thought we'd play you an interview we taped with him about it last winter. I started by noting that poets are, in a way, always working— so I wondered if maybe he'd had any flashes of inspiration on his way to our studio. A flash is a little strong. There are a couple of inklings. I mean, I took a walk in Central Park. Okay. I do have a poem in this new book called Solvator Ambulando, which is Latin for it is solved by walking. Mm -hmm. And the poem is sort of about that uh, belief that if you have a problem, you take it out for a walk and then you don't turn around until you have some clarification. Mm. So the poem really is about someone who just walks for, you know, hundreds of miles without clarification. But but walking is always a good time to pick up some things. So there were, there were some dogs. There was some bird activity. Mm. Um, I was going to say, as a poet, do you look for problems? You're kind of like, well, maybe I'll go find something. Out well, there. you it's – I think if you look, you won't find. If you're closed off, you're not going to see anything. And if you're – kind of greedily hunting down something, you're not going to find it either. Mm. It's it's some kind of balanced openness or vigilance or attentiveness. That brings me to one of the poems I'd like to have you read called Cheerios. Okay. Poem called Cheerios. One bright morning in a restaurant in Chicago, as I waited for my eggs and toast, I opened the Tribune only to discover that I was the same age as Cheerios. Indeed, I was a few months older than Cheerios, for today, the newspaper announced, was the 70th birthday of Cheerios, whereas mine had occurred earlier in the year. 
Already I could hear them whispering behind my stooped and threadbare back. Why, that dude's older than Cheerios. The way they used to say, why, that's as old as the hills. Only the hills are much older than Cheerios or any American breakfast cereal. And more noble and enduring are the hills, I surmised, as a bar of sunlight illuminated my orange juice. So is that an example of just being attentive? And I think so. I mean, I hate to say that, I hate that expression, true story, but yeah, I was <laughs> sitting there waiting for my eggs and toast, and uh, and that was in the Tribune. I had, you know, uh, being, uh, any time you turn an, uh, a, a, a birthday that ends at a zero, it, it comes as quite a shock. Mm. In fact, I made up a word. The noun is incredimentia. Okay. And incredimentia is the inability to believe how... <laughs> old you become. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, I was as old as Cheerios, and then I thought, I think it's also just recognizing that that, that seemed to have some poetic potential. What is that? Is Can you describe that um, that emotion? Um, I'm not sure. It's, it's more than just uh, an interesting experience. It's something, it's really the result of an opportunistic version of experience. Yeah. Well, you look at age several ways uh, in, in the new poems. Another one uh, I'd like to ask you to read is to my favorite high school... To my favorite 17-year-old high school to girl. To my favorite 17-year-old high school girl, and age figures into this poem beyond the title. So if you could read that for us. Okay. To my favorite 17-year-old high school girl, do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? Of course, you couldn't have done that alone, so never mind. You're fine just as you are. You are love for simply being yourself. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture, Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory, and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room? No, wait, I mean he had invented the calculator. Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life, after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least pick up all your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15, but then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. A few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But, of course, that was in Austria, at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15 or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosca at 17? We think you are special by just being you, playing with your food and staring into space. By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. Tell me a little bit about that narrator. Well, the narrator is a uh, presumably a parent who's uh, just reacting to the slackerdom or whatever it is of of contemporary adolescence, and uh, unfairly, of course, bringing up all these impossible Great. role models. I mean, beginning with the it took eighteen years to build the Parthenon, yeah. and he's thinking, well, if she started at, as an infant, yeah. And then he checks himself. But he's kind of a literary guy. He knows yeah. about Franz Schubert and all this stuff. But basically, he's just trying to get his daughter motivated, but in all the wrong ways, of course, by comparing her to these uh, success stories. These greats. 
Just one last question that I was thinking about as I was reading your poems. Is there a hard part of being a poet? Like, like what's the hardest part of a well, gig? Well, I can't help this, but Max, uh, the humorist Max Beerbaum had the answer to that. Okay. He said the most difficult thing about being a poet is knowing what to do with the remaining 23 and a half hours <laughs> of the day. <laughs> So, Rico, I have an idea for what poets can do with their free time. All right. You mean when they're not busy being destitute? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Picture this. An app on your phone that connects you with a poet who will then write on your behalf any text or email that you want to imbue with charm or longing or, you know, what have you. So like an emergency 24-hour call center full of poets. Yeah. Sounds nice. And it'd be called Cyrano de Bergerap. You made me a part of this. (laughs) to eavesdrop. Comedian and actor Asif Manvi is one of the merry band of correspondents on The Daily Show. He's also appeared in a slew of films, including Spider-Man 2 and Premium Rush. This month, he released a collection of humor essays. Today, we overhear a thrillering excerpt. Hi, my name is Asif Manvi. Uh, You may know me as the foreign Muslim Middle East doctor correspondent on The Daily Show. I wrote this book called No Lands Man. It has to do with my life, you know, born in India, growing up in the UK, growing up in the US, fitting in, working in Hollywood. I'm going to read to you uh, a little excerpt from the book, a chapter called You Can't Be Michael Jackson All the Time. It was 1984, and MTV had recently launched on American cable television. That same year, the drama department at my high school decided that instead of producing a traditional fall play, they would put on a variety show. The drama students were asked to perform some kind of musical number, even if their lack of singing ability left them to resort to lip-syncing. Initially, I decided to boycott the show entirely. But a few weeks before the performance, in a drug-induced moment in the back of my friend Roy's Sky Blue Volkswagen... I made a decision that would change the rest of my high school experience. The variety show would have its very own Michael Jackson. Earlier that year, Michael Jackson had sealed his stature as being bigger than Jesus. A single glove, a fedora, and the moonwalk all came together in a magical moment. Truth be told, it was not the first time I had ever seen the moonwalk. The black kids in school had been popping and breakdancing outside the lunchroom for almost a year before I saw Michael do it on TV. I'd even tried doing it myself, in my bedroom, late at night. But I always looked less like I was dancing and more like I was being riddled with bullets. So, I practiced that dance everywhere, all the time. I danced in the shower to the thumping of my mother on the other side of the bathroom door, yelling, What are you doing in there? Why are you taking a shower at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? One night before bed, while I was grabbing a glass of milk, I woke my father, who emerged to the sight of his teenage son, kicking and twirling and emitting piercing, high-pitched squeals, wearing only his underwear at two in the morning. He must have wondered in that moment, as he watched me from the shadows, why he had ever come to this country. Despite my poor display, my family was supportive. Even though my grandmother didn't understand what it all meant, she would walk into my bedroom every day and sing, Billy Jesus, Not My Lawyer. The day of the variety show arrived. I walked out in the darkness and stepped into a spotlight. And in an instant, my mouth seemed to lose all moisture. My limbs felt heavy as I assumed a familiar pose. 
I realized that stoned people make impulsive decisions that lack judgment, and that this was the backbone of the Say No to Drugs campaign. Before I was ready for it to happen, the familiar throbbing beat began. I reached up with my makeshift glittered glove drenched in sweat and slid my fingers across the brim of my fedora. I thrust out my hip and kicked my right leg straight and hard. A girl screamed, I love you! I heard another scream, hell yeah! Then another, and another, and in an instant, a confidence began to come over me that I had never experienced before. There was an explosive scream from the audience as I swallowed and opened my mouth, becoming a vessel for Michael's pitch-perfect lament. All I had to do was bring the swagger. I walked forward and I glided backwards. It couldn't have been easier. I was an Indian-English kid who had been transplanted to America, dancing on a Tampa high school stage, channeling a black man who looked like an Indian girl. It is true that you can't be Michael Jackson all the time. But on that day, for four minutes and 30 seconds, the entire student body, black kids, white kids, the jocks, the prom queens, the drama kids, even the two Asian kids and the one Indian kid, Dilip, stood up and screamed, Michael. Writer, actor, and comedian Asif Mandvi reading from his new humor collection, No Lands Man. That piece was edited for time. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, regular listeners know we are fans of the classic martini. That's right. Gin, not towards France. Olives. I will take the same. But Thanksgiving's coming up, football watching day, and really beer is the drink for that game, we can agree. Mm -hmm. Which may be why beer seems to be on people's minds right now. When I was looking through food blogs this week, every other story basically was something odd about beer. So for a roundup, I turn to William Bostwick. He is beer critic for the Wall Street Journal, and he just put out a book about beer history. It's called The Brewer's Tale. I started by asking him about a new limited edition brew that came out this week called Beer for Breakfast. That's right. So that's a new beer coming out of uh, Dogfish Head, one of the top craft breweries in the country and sure. famous for putting bizarre things into beer. They brewed a beer with chocolate and lobsters, <laughs> uh, and their latest has Scrapple, kind of a Central East Coast breakfast mashup of pork cracklings and pork scraps and yeah. cornmeal. And so they brewed a breakfast beer with uh, coffee and milk and maple syrup, and just to top it all off, why not pork? <laughs> have you had a chance to taste this thing? I have not tried the Scrapple beer yet. All right. Do you have high hopes? I mean, have you had a other? I'm assuming you've probably tasted at least one of those other novelty blends of theirs. I've tasted plenty of beers with weird things in them. And I have uh, medium hopes. You know, beef bouillon was a common additive to beer in Victorian times to give it some body. Really? Yeah, so who knows? Maybe this one will will have a nice little fat back to it from the pork. Is there a limit, though, to limited-run novelty beers? I know there's that Scottish brewery that keeps putting out super expensive, mega-high alcohol beers that clearly 10 people are going to buy. Right, brew dog. It's really just for publicity, right? I mean, partially it's so that we'll talk about it right now on the show. I think for some people it is, but I really do feel like, you know, for Dogfish Head, they try really hard to see what beer can be that it hasn't been before. 
And that means trying pretty much everything in the kitchen. An iron skillet. Sure. All right. Speaking of kitchen implements, next thing on the line here is something called hoppier. And I'm not sure I fully understand what this thing is. Right. So the hoppier is kind of like an espresso machine for beer invented by this... uh, British engineering and consultant group. And and the way that it works is, like espresso, you pack this kind of cup full of hops. And hops are the leafy flower that gives beer its, you know, its bitterness and also a lot of its aromatic component. IPAs have a lot of that in it. Exactly. And so, say you get a beer at the store and it's not hoppy enough to your tastes, what you can do is pack this little cup full of hops and pour the beer through it just like, you know, pouring hot water through a a, a cup full of coffee grounds to make your espresso. And the idea is that it will pick up a lot of that hop flavor after the fact. You could take maybe a a cheap, you know, you could run PBR through it. Yeah, that seems to be the idea. You can uh, save money by buying crummy beer (laughs) and filtering it through hops. But, you know, in my mind, it's kind of like painting racing stripes on a minivan. I mean, you already have the beer just adding... (laughs) Adding more hops to it's not really going to incorporate well into the the overall flavor. Uh, all right, last thing here. This is, you know, almost anti-American. Right, this is the most egregious addition to beer we've heard about this week. Sure, the Seattle Seahawks stadium seems to be selling watered-down beer. Right, so that that's the allegation. So a, a Seattle news team, a KOMO, went out to the stadium, pulled a bunch of samples of beer from the various little stalls, sent it back to a lab to get tested, and the ABV, or the alcohol by volume of these beers, was coming in at about half a percent lower than what the beers were advertised as. Which is a pretty major deal. That's actually substantially lower, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's a major deal because it's, it's actually illegal. Federal law, it allows a 0.3% swing, in ABV. So almost twice the, the legal limit. That's a big deal. Is this, do we know why this is happening? Are they actually watering it down at the, at the point of sale, or is it being delivered from the brewers with less alcohol? Well, we don't know. Further research is required, much to the, uh, to the delight of the researchers, I imagine. <laughs> I also, I, I do wonder, though, what led them to want to conduct this experiment. Are these guys just really hard drinkers and they're like, normally by this point, I would be sauced. <laughs> yeah. But something's going yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Something's awry. <laughs> right. And so that and so that, that raises the question, you know, is this a uh, crowd control measure? They just, is this drunkard enforcement? Aha. Uh-huh. And not just, you know, watering it down for profit. Although you just wrote a book about beer history. There must be you know, many famous examples of beer being watered down to make an extra buck. No, I'm, actually, in, in Victorian England was kind of the golden age, or, or I guess the dark age, depending on how you look at it, for putting <laughs> for putting bizarre things in beer. This this famous beer critic at the time, a guy named William Loftus, called it homicidal quackery, and uh, and <laughs> most of this was done to actually make beers stronger. You know, brewers would put in, uh, they would add opium. What? Yeah, one book, one book advertised uh, cayenne pepper for, quote, a sensation of warmth. Um, whether any of this really worked, well, I guess we'll look to Dogfish Head to test it out. William Bostwick, he is the author of the books Beer Craft and his new tome, The Brewer's Tale, A History of the World According to Beer. 
And actually, Brendan, William reminded me that one of the early purposes of making beer, like thousands of years ago, mm. might have been to purify water, to actually make water wow. safer. Wow. That seems way more fun than my Brita. <laughs> it's like a Brita filter with benefits. Uh, folks, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, pop legend Brian Ferry talks about his musical ready-mades when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In just a few minutes, musician Brian Ferry talks about his new album, Avon Moore, and explains what inspired him to dress impeccably. But first, speaking of impeccable behavior, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Lynn Rosetto Casper. She is host of The Splendid Table, our sister show from American Public Media and the Infinite Guest Podcast Network. On that show, she talks about all things food. They have won two James Beard Foundation Awards for Best National Radio Show on Food. I didn't even know they had those. I'm yeah, jealous. We got to give you some competition there. <laughs> <laughs> she has also published many best-selling books about food, including The Splendid Tables, How to Eat Supper. This is all to say she is the perfect person to field etiquette questions the week before Thanksgiving. And Lynn, it is great to have you. Good to be with you both. So, Lynn, every year you and a bunch of other food luminaries host something called Turkey Confidential, Yep. The name alone, I, I love. And uh, where people can call in for food preparation advice for a couple of hours. What was the strangest or most memorable emergency you've been called upon to, to solve? Um, one man called in, and he said he had been cooking his turkey for his family for years this way. He had taken the turkey the night before Thanksgiving, put it into a 500-degree oven, I think for something like a half hour or 45 minutes, turned the oven off, and left the turkey in the oven until the next morning. And when it was time to serve dinner, he turned the oven on to heat it through. Now, between 40 and 140 degrees, bacteria have a field day. Mm. Spoilage is real danger. This man had created <laughs> the perfect. <laughs> I mean, a perfect. It was an oversized petri dish. I mean, this thing. And he was very put out when I suggested that maybe it wasn't a good yeah, idea. He'd been lucky basically for years. Well, the thing I, I I was trying to figure out a way how to be polite to ask him how many people have died after Thanksgiving, <laughs> or you know how many hospital visits have you had to sure. make? Do you think you changed his mind? It's really hard to break people of their traditions. Never, <laughs> ever. Mm. This man was. Convinced. Convinced that he was doing it right. You maybe should give us his name so we can all be sure never That's to eat right. at this guy's house. This is a well, public service you'd be providing. If all of them have been eating this way for years, they've probably built up all kinds of defenses. I I don't want to be a stranger at that table. Okay. All right. We told our listeners you'd be here, and they've got food etiquette questions for you. So are you ready for these, Lynn? I am ready. This first one comes from Patrick in Santa Monica, California. He writes, what's the right way to eat turducken? I'm intimidated. <laughs> okay, this is the deal with turducken. You know, it's a small poultry inside of a bigger poultry inside of mm -hmm. a bigger poultry inside of a bigger poultry. Yeah. And the reality is this is like a boneless roast. Oh, so, yes. yeah, I mean, this has all been pressed together. So there's sure. no big secret. I would thin slice it okay. and uh, do a gravy number and you're there. Are and people I, still doing the turducken, Lynn? Like, have you... I guess. Well, this guy is. And, yeah, but you know true. what's funny? You know what's funny about turducken? You know, what did it start? 15 years ago or whatever? 
Yeah. In the medieval period, this was a very big deal. They just didn't call it turducken. And yeah. they used things like a peacock, you know, stuffed with a swan, <laughs> stuffed with a, a partridge, wow. stuffed with a pear tree, and yeah. they went on from there. But but it's been around for a really long time. In Philadelphia, we would just chop this up, add onions and cheese whiz, and we'd have a cheesesteak. <laughs> yes. so, a- well, that's right. And that's what I think that's what you should do with the leftovers. <laughs> there see. we are. All right, Patrick. So don't be intimidated. Just slice it and dig in. Yeah. All right. So here's something from Anna in Melbourne, Australia. Anna writes, some Argentinian friends invited me to a dinner party. I kindly reminded them that I'm a vegetarian. They replied by asking if I could bring along my own vegetarian food. I have never been invited to a dinner party where I had to self-cater. I feel a little insulted. Should I attend the dinner party? I don't know that this issue is something that's worth breaking a relationship for. And it's, it's, and it's also how the question is asked. I mean, if you say to somebody, oh, come on, look, if you want to do this, bring your own food. <laughs> that would be a signal of best not share bread at their table. But I mean, if you want to say it this way, which is, I would really love to make something special for you, but we're in such a state of overload. Would you mind... Yes. bringing a dish you can really enjoy because we're going to have salad and we're going to have this and we're going to have that. Yeah, if you leave That's... it to us, you might be dining on raw carrots. Tonight. Exactly. <laughs> so it's all in the tone. But if she's faintly insulted, I'd also talk to them about it. Although it's tough on, on vegetarians. I think that there is vegetarians, I think, already feel like, and the, not without reason, that people are already judging them on their food choice. Oh, I agree. Oh, I agree. I think, it, I think if anything, it's going the other way where I feel guilty presenting a roast. Both, both <laughs> of you are right, but remember where these people are from. They're from Argentina. That's a beef Meat, culture. It's a beef culture. I don't think there's even a white chicken breast in the picture. I still think there are pockets where people look upon vegetarianism as something they really don't know how to deal with. Yeah. All right. So, Anna, take into account the tone and the nationality and proceed from there. Uh, here's something from JR in LA. This is our last question. JR says, Say I burned some buns I've been toasting in the oven and forgotten about. <laughs> Just a hypothetical. Sure. Okay. Is it all right to scrape off the burned part and still serve the edible buns as I would <laughs> if I were eating alone, or should I find a workaround? I think find a workaround. Yeah. Unless you want to turn all of that stuff that didn't get burned into croutons. Uh-huh. Break it up into big pieces, a little olive oil, a little bit of garlic, a little salt and pepper into the frying pan, and toast them up. That can go into salad, that can go on top of a vegetable, and no one will know that the only way you can get to it is by first burning your bones. <laughs> <laughs> or tell everybody that you burned them on purpose and that you're a genius. That's right. Just play it off legit. Yes, this is the trick to this recipe, to get just this level of golden brown luscious toastedness. <laughs> Lynn Rosetta Casper, you are... Are always welcome at our table, burned buns or not. Mm. Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. You are welcome and have a great holiday. Lynn Rosetto Casper, host of the show The Splendid Table. Over at splendidtable.org, you can learn where to hear it on the radio or head to infiniteguest.org to download the podcast. And folks, if you have a question about how to behave, food related or otherwise, send it to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and we'll find someone to sort you out.
1971, the English rock scene was teeming with blues rockers. America was full of garage and folk rockers. And then, seemingly from outer space, appeared Roxy Music, a glammed-up bunch of art kids with their eyes on the future. Brian Ferry was the group's founder and lead songwriter. He was handsome and polished, his voice an eerie vibrato. The band's sound was hugely influential on glam, punk, and later new wave music. And Ferry also cultivated an equally popular solo career that continues today. This week, at age 69, he released a new album called Avon Moore, and he came by the studio to talk with me about it. First, here's a clip from the title track. So the songs in this album, like much of your music, uh, they're multi-layered, there's a lot of texture, there's so much going on, and I just had the basic question, how do they begin? Uh, <laughs> in, in a notebook? Yeah, on, on a piano? They usually be, yeah, they usually start on the piano, probably late at night normally, and then they go through lots of different stages, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I take them to the studio at some point, and uh, I start working them up uh, from the piano onwards, you know, and add various musicians here and there and yeah. uh, over a period of, of time. Is it a melody or a, or a lyric? Like oh, what? it's usually the melody that begins, yeah, okay. yeah. And the lyrics come much later. I kind of paint myself into a corner and then I have to write the lyrics. Then you're for... Yeah. I, I, maybe this didn't apply to this Karen album, but I saw a short doc made about your creation huh. of Olympia. Oh, yeah. Some of your songs have a long evolution time, like, yeah. like you work on them for years. Yeah. In the same way that a painter would kind of, uh, an artist would have various pictures on the go, you know, and you sometimes leave them for a while and go back to them later. And, yeah. And you have different inspirations for different moods at different times, you know. So, yeah, and I have lots of different musicians as you come to my studio and work with me. So uh, and then I'll say, oh, here's another song I'd like you to play on and uh, yeah. so on and so forth. So you work with a lot of collaborators. Yeah, on, yeah. on this album, you have Niall Rogers, yeah. who's been on this show. What a wonderful, energetic yeah, human being. He's amazing, isn't he? He's, yeah. <laughs> I, I first met Niall over here in New York, 83, I think it was, when I was doing the Boys and Girls album. Mm -hmm. He played on that. Yeah. Then he's played on several of my albums since then. Yeah. So you worked with Niall. Also, Mark Knopfler plays a little bit on this yeah. album. Uh, and, and Johnny Marr as well, who is... Who, I first met him, actually, a friend of mine was producing The Smiths, mm -hmm. um, a guy called John Porter, who used to play uh, bass in Roxy at one point. And uh, that's when I met Johnny, when he was really just starting out with The Smiths. Were you a fan of The Smiths? Uh, I liked them. I liked them very much. I, I never actually saw them live. Would you ever cover a Smith song? Yeah, I'd love to one day, yeah. I'll see what he has in, if he has anything in mind. Yeah, because I, I wonder yeah. you've you know you've met with great success with your covers. Uh -huh. It's been mm. an important part of your solo. I mean, the uh -huh. beginning of your solo career. Yeah, that's right. Is there a criteria for mm. for those songs? I mean, you've everything from Bob Dylan to Cole Porter. It has to be a song that I have an affection for, obviously that I love. You know, yeah. Uh, sometimes you just have a feeling for a song, and you you don't really have words to describe it. You just think, oh well, this is me, or I think I can imagine doing this, yeah. or bringing something of myself to it. I still, you know, like doing my own songs. Of course. Uh, uh, which was like my career in Roxy. But uh, when I started doing uh, covers, the first solo album, it was 
like a holiday away from my own writing kind of thing. Well, they use the artist art term. You, you've, I think, at one point, you've described it as your ready mades, uh, yeah, which are obviously like the Duchampian yeah, yeah. concept yeah, yeah. of uh, finding an object a- and yeah. presenting yeah. it in a different context. Trying to put your own stamp on it and yeah. personalize it. Yeah. So it's, sometimes it's a bit, it feels a bit like that. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains Walked and I called on six crooked highways Stepped in the middle of seven sad forests Been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of the graveyard It's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard So uh, we were talking about ready-mades. You went to art school. You taught art for a little while. Your mentor at one point was the British pop artist Richard Hamilton. Oh, yeah. And you've talked about what you, what you brought to Roxy Music was your love of black soul music and your kind of art school background. Mm. I wonder how does art, like with a capital A, play into your songwriting process now? I try and write songs and make records that I hope will last a couple of years and mm-hmm. and not be totally kind of throwaway or disposable, which is, I guess, part of the kind of pop music aesthetic. That you just sure. kind of, it's here today, gone tomorrow. You crank it out as part yeah. of the zeitgeist. But I kind of, I suppose I have the feeling that, well, I, I want to, to be able to sing this in 10 years' time and mm-hmm. uh, so that it'll have some longevity. And Why do you work in the pop idiom? I'm not good enough to be a jazz pianist <laughs> for a start. Uh, but I, I kind of, I find it, uh, I'm a singer, I guess, essentially. And... Um, I don't know. I, I like guitars. I, I, I like working with some of the kind of the cruder elements of rock and roll, I yeah. suppose. That's interesting because the word crude is not something one thinks of normally when thinking of Brian Ferry. Um, elegant, dapper, these are kind of the words that come to mind. I'm sitting across from you now and I can attest that you are a well-dressed person. Uh, uh, <laughs> I made an effort to see you. <laughs> well, I'm glad my reputation precedes me. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there was a good quote I read, which is, Brian Ferry is the type of musician who's more likely to redesign a hotel room than destroy it. It's a good quote. I like that. It, it, it seems to have stuck around. <laughs> yeah. And, well, it's, uh, it's a concise way of maybe... I suppose so. I mean, uh, when you travel a lot, you see a lot of hotel rooms. So, you can, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't carry a swatch of fabrics around with no, me. No, no. I, I'm not saying you're interior designer. <laughs> but that's the idea, though. But I guess what I'm saying is it's interesting. Yeah. Your aesthetic, yeah, you've yeah. talked about, comes from an admiration for, like, Cary Grant. Oh, sure. I love him. Yeah. And this kind yeah. of old world. Yeah, yeah. And an old world charm. It goes a long way, yes. But there was when you were... That was a rebellious act in 1972 when everyone, when long hair and yeah. jeans was People the were throwing the TVs out of windows. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah. so where did, where did that, you know, come from? I, I suppose I grew up seeing a lot of great movies. You know? Yeah. I mean, so did Ray Davies. He doesn't dress as well he, as you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's okay. Um, yeah, the musicians that I loved as a kid were kind of some of the great jazz musicians like Charlie Parker and so on, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Miles Davis. They were all cool dressers, you That's know. That's true, yeah. That's and they, they look very – they're kind of hip guys, you yeah. know. And so that was always a kind of uh, a role model for me. All right. Well, my last question appeals to your knowledge of fashion. Uh, I just got my hair cut yesterday. 
Aha. How, what do we think? Is it all right? I, I think Pro- very, very good. It's, all right? Because it was look. longer. It was down oh, to really? here. Oh, wow. And I got it tight. I knew you were coming in, yeah. <laughs> and I had it tidied up. I'm, so. I'm glad to have been a part of this process. <laughs> well, I mean, you can't just have Ryan Ferry come to your studio and not prepare for it. Cool. Um, thank you so much for coming by and chatting with us. Pleasure. Thank you. Enrico, everybody, go to our website to catch a photo I took of Ferry. I wasn't kidding. He looked fit, not a hair out of place. Man. And as he left the studio, he told me he was heading over to the Whitney Museum to catch a Jeff Koons retrospective. Oh, of course he was. <laughs> he walks the walk. All right, folks, that is the dinner party download for this week. Next week, it's our all-food Thanksgiving episode. Yum. Our, yes, our best food stories of the year as chosen by you. Till then, we are always around on Twitter or Instagram where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Brittany Martin is our digital assistant. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Charlton Thorpe and Ravi Carmen provided engineering. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Unius Mevant is a singer-songwriter from Reykjavik. He has only one single out at the moment. It's called Color Decay. We learned about it this week via the Twitter feed of the Seattle radio station KEXP. And now we are paying it forward. Bon appétit. for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. Wait, what are you eating? It's a cheesesteak. Inside a martini. Ah, inside a hammock. <laughs> so that's a uh, chimarmic, I guess. I just call it my weekend. <laughs>